I'm so glad that you're here this morning uh, to be a part of Outward Church. Uh, just, I have a few things to share with you uh, real quick before I get going on a new series in the book of Philippians. Um, and so uh, just a, a couple things. First thing is this. Um, had a, another organization uh, that we have some ties to. Um, we haven't gotten full confirmation on this yet, so I, I'm not going to tell you who it is yet. But uh, another big organization that's associated with the school district and things of that nature that have heard about our vision to feed, uh, to potentially feed 800 families, which represents about 4,000 people for THX this coming, uh, this coming Thanksgiving. And uh, they, uh, they told one of our elders, hey, count us in. We want to be a part of this. And so I am so stinking excited about that. I just want to keep you informed as to what's uh, taking place. Uh, we just have uh, more and more people that are jumping on board. And so in addition to that, we're meeting with uh, the school district this coming uh, week, in fact, I think on uh, Tuesday. And so we'll be sitting down with them. I'm not exactly sure you know, what will take place there except uh, good things. And so uh, we're excited about meeting with them about THX as well. If you're unfamiliar with what THX is, THX is what we do on Thanksgiving. We feed as many people as possible and, and help them understand that God is the one who's, who's feeding them through this. And, uh, and uh, we get to feed them a Thanksgiving dinner, a Christmas. We don't feed them the tree, but we give them a Christmas tree. Um, uh, if, they, if, if they don't like us, we feed them the tree. But, uh, <laughs> but no, we, uh, we give them a tree, we give them some gifts and things like that. And so it costs a lot of money. But it's a great way for us to connect with our community, both with the community connections that we have that are serving alongside of us, and then also the, the people that we're serving. And so that's a really great thing. So that's what's going on. And our vision is big. It's too big. It's, it's probably going to be at least, uh, I think I said $56,000 is what we're looking to raise. Um, and, and that's not all on you, you guys. Uh, obviously, we're a little church. And so... Um, we're going to have to raise a lot of those funds outside, but I just want to tell you that you guys stepped up this last THX and gave a ton of cash to that, so thank you so much for being a part of that. So uh, there will be more updates coming, uh, hopefully weekly. We'll tell you what's, what's going on with that, and t- a ton of you have also said, hey, I want to be a part of this. I want to volunteer for this. We haven't forgotten about you. In addition to that, so we have an educators um, uh, meeting, and I, I think we were calling it an educators forum. I'm not checking text messages right now. Um, it is uh, February 18th. Um, just right here after service. It'll be at 11.45 a.m. We'll be just probably right here uh, in the seats here. So if you work for the school district or or in education in some way and you'd like to kind of help participate, we want to talk with you because we believe that uh, you're the people that are closest to what's happening in our schools. You may have better ideas than we do. In fact, I'm sure of it. Um, every time we've, we've had conversations with uh, teachers and people that are involved in those types of things, it helps direct how we're best able to get need into, uh, uh, to get uh, services to people in our schools in unconventional ways. We're an unconventional church. We got to do things in innovative ways, and so we're looking for ways to innovate in the ways that we connect with our city. So if you're an educator... If you're somebody who wants to be a part of that, you can just stick around for that. We'd love to know that you're going to be here because we're going to provide just a, a quick l- lunch option. Probably won't be a ton, but we'll, we'll, we'll have a, you know, some small sandwiches, some, some, uh, something to eat uh, real quick. But 11.45 to 12.45, hopefully it'll be, it'll be quick. We'd love to hear from you on that. You can put your name in out at Connect Central out there. That'd be awesome. Secondly, I want to tell you about this. Uh, so many of you are, are newly married 
and, and things are not po- perhaps going as well as you'd like it to. Um, and uh, that might be putting it <laughs> delicately, but, um, uh, but, but perhaps maybe you are doing fine or maybe you're looking to be married. We have a marriage conference that we're doing. It's a live stream, except it's not live, and so it's basically just a video, but uh, from <laughs> uh, Paul Tripp, and so um, we actually, I, I don't know if you've ever been to one of these conferences, but they have all these ads in, interspersed in there that are um, a little bit tiresome and awkward and stuff like that, and so uh, in any case, we're cutting all that stuff out, and we're, we're doing a uh, marriage conference here, and that will begin on Friday night, uh, dang it, what did I do? Okay, February 23rd. Uh, at 6 p.m., and then there's a Saturday morning uh, session as well, and I, I cannot remember what the, the time on that is, but I believe it's 9 to noon, somewhere in there. It is. Thank you. Okay. And uh, so there is, there is a small fee. If you can't afford it, like finances are in, in disarray or, or, or if it's just where you're at, please uh, let us know. We'd be glad to have you come for free, but um, we want you to be there. So if you're having problems in marriage... And you're going to come talk to me about your problems in marriage, but you don't go to the marriage conference, shame on you, all right? Yeah. Go to the stinking marriage conference. We'd love to hang out with you. Hopefully, it'll be, it'll be a cool time, and so I'll, I'll be there. Um, let's see here. I think I got all that stuff. Okay. Uh, lastly is this. My wife hasn't been here for the last two weeks. We're still together, uh, just so you know. Uh, that's the good news, and she's, and she's okay. Uh, that's... The other good news, and now for the rest of the story, which is, uh, so my kids got this horrific uh, sore throat and cough and uh, whatnot, and my wife has gotten close to the children since they've been sick, unlike their dad, who is just like, stay away, child. Like, don't get near me, because I don't want to get sick, but uh, horrendous sore throat and so forth. So she got sick uh, just this last week, started like Thursday and it's just really bad, really bad sore throat. She wasn't feeling well. And then uh, yesterday morning, she uh, had, you know, went down, took a shower, and was, um, you know, just feeling really bad. Started to feel lightheaded, so started coming upstairs as quickly as possible because she felt like she was going to faint. She fainted on the last flight of stairs. Um, at coming up the stairs, my son's dad, mom's in trouble, whatever, so I run down the stairs, grab her, bring her up the stairs. She was, she was kind of fine at that point, uh, and then all of a sudden she gave out. I laid her on the bed, and she did not look good. The kids are screaming um, and freaking out. My oldest son was incredible. He got the little ones out of the room, and uh, I, I mean, I, was, I thought I lost my wife, so that was, uh, that was crazy. Um, but uh, in any case, we called paramedics, and, and they came and checked her out. But she, evidently, it was, um, you know, long story short, we, we then took her down to uh, the ER. They, we were in there for quite a while, gave her an EKG, um, things like that. And so, scary situation, but um, nonetheless, uh, she's fine. It was probably just the hot shower combined with being sick um, that just caused blood to not be in the, the right place. And... And, uh, and then trying to get upstairs quickly and exerting herself um, while she was feeling lightheaded did not, did not help. And so everything's okay, and, uh, but she had a horrible sore throat, so now she's on some pain meds and stuff. So uh, hopefully she'll be back with us next week. But I just wanted to let you know that that's where um, the pastor's wife is, and so everything is good, um, sort of. Um, so you can be praying for her that she feels better. I did ask her if I could tell uh, that story, and she was fine with that, so... We're in the book of Philippians, so if you want to turn there with me, that would be awesome. 
Philippians chapter 1, and basically, um, we're, we're digging into a book of the Bible. I've never taught on this book before in, in its entirety, and so I'm excited to be discussing it with you. Um, uh, the book of Philippians is, uh, is a letter. It's, it's written in letter form, uh, as many of the books of the New Testament are, especially from Paul. They're written in letter form, and they are to a church in the city of Philippi. And uh, this is a church that Paul is close to. You'll see that in his language to this church. He's close to them. He loves them. There's a mutual love that goes back and forth uh, between them two. In fact, one of my commentaries says, at the time of writing in the late 50s or early 60s, Paul was in prison. He had just received a monetary gift from the Philippians through their emissary, Epaphroditus. And so they are involved in uh, helping Paul uh, be a missionary. They're helping Paul establish churches. And so they, they've just sent uh, their friend Epaphroditus to him um, with a gift. He's in prison. Uh, life is difficult. A lot of his friends have left him. He's uh, virtually alone except for a, a couple of people, but a lot of his ministry partners have left. There's people who are kind of after him. You'll see throughout the letter how he talks about just various people that may be pushing back on his message for uh, various reasons, we're not entirely what all entirely sure what all of those reasons are. But he's talking to this church, and he wants to give them some encouragement. Now, a lot of people believe that the book of Philippians is primarily about joy, because he's he's talking about re rejoice this, rejoice that, joy, have joy in this, and and you'll see the word joy in there quite a bit. Uh, but there's something that people often miss, and I've read this in a couple of different. Uh, ways that commentators talk about, and they say, you know, what, what, what they're really missing is this idea of thinking, of, of thinking. In fact, throughout the, the book, uh, the word for think, which is phreneo uh, in Greek, that's the original word, the word for think is translated in, a multiple, uh, in, in, in multiple different ways. And people often miss it because they don't really see the same word. They don't see think, but they, they see various words like consider or, or feel or things of that nature. But the original word in the original language says phreneo. And so that word goes throughout this book. Now, why that's important is because he says it about 10 times throughout this book. And that is even more, uh, he, he uses that word in Philippians more times than he does even in the book of Romans. Now, Philippians is only four chapters long, but Romans is 16 chapters long. And so it's not just something that just comes up willy-nilly, if you will, uh, but it's something that Paul really wants to say to these people. He wants them to think differently. He wants them to think. In fact, one of the hallmark passages uh, from the book of Philippians is Philippians chapter 2, where he says, so if there, chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, of the same phreneo, of the same thinking. That's, that's what he's saying there. So then he, go down to verse 5, which says, have this phreneo, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
when you realize that, and the reason why I'm telling you this is because this is uh, in part how we study the Bible. This is how we understand what's being said there. It's how we think deeply about what's taking place there in the original language is that we look at it and we say, what is repeated and why is it repeated uh, throughout the book? Well, Paul is telling them, I want you to think differently. I want you to change your thinking. I want you to change the way you believe. I want you to change the way that you feel about these things. That starts with, with your mind. That starts with the way that you think about things in life. And I found that to be true as well. Uh, in your life, if the only thing that you're working on is behavior modification, like some of you came here today and you know, and if everybody else knew about your life, which, and this is most of us in this room, if everybody knew about everything else that's going on, we'd say, all right, that person's pretty jacked up. Like, that's, that's crazy. Like, I, I, I'm in that boat. Like, I mean, if you knew all my thoughts and all, all my feelings and stuff like that, you say, Matt, Matt is, is, is kind of jacked up. But all of us are, are in that way. But too frequently, what we focus on is we focus on behavior modification. I need to change what I'm doing. I need to stop doing this, and I need to start doing that. And if I could just do that, then things would be different for me. If I could just stop doing those things and start doing these things, then everything would be fine. Here's the problem. It never works. It doesn't work. It might work for some time. In fact, sometimes if you're somebody who has really great self-personal discipline, um, you can force yourself to do some things and, and, and good things at that. But many times what lags behind is really the will, the emotion, the feeling behind those things. So it's not really being done from the heart. The way that you're following God is not from the heart. Your faithfulness to your wife or your husband is not done from the heart. Your, uh, perhaps if you're giving to the church, it's not being done from the heart because your thinking hasn't changed. It's just you're trying to change your actions. And so all that it is is behavior modification. Now, sometimes it just takes behavior modification. You know, so, someone propositions you uh, to step out of your marriage and to get involved in some, uh, you know, some type of, of, of an affair. It doesn't matter what it takes. Stay out of that affair. Do that with uh, behavior modification. And then try to get the feelings to follow. Just wanted to make that note. But our issue is often that we are only doing behavior modification without actually trying to change our thinking. Now, what I see what Paul is doing in the book of, of Philippians is that he sees um, uh, many issues. I think people have this book wrong. They say, man, Philippians is such a great church, and he's just kind of being encouraging, like, man, you can do it. You're fine. No, he's really pushing back on some things that are taking place. He's pushing back on some jacked up thinking. He's pushing back on some messed up thinking. And every single one of us has to understand this. Every single one of us has to understand this. Our thinking's got to change in order for things to actually change. Our thinking needs to be adjusted. It needs to be redirected. Let's get into the book here. It says, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, we're just going to stop right there for a second. The Apostle Paul, when he starts a letter, oftentimes he talks about Paul. He, he says, Paul, an apostle, called to do this and called to do that. To do that. Now, what, what, why does he do that normally? When he's normally writing a letter, he's writing to people that may or may not receive his apostleship. They may not be receiving his authority. And so what people take from this is, is, is really two things. 
is that the Apostle Paul has authority, and yet he doesn't need to exert it in this moment because these people are his friends. Secondly, Timothy is not uh, an apostle, but Paul puts himself on an equal playing field with Timothy, and he's saying, like, this is from us both, me and Timothy. We are servants of Christ Jesus. And so he's coming at them in a loving way, and he's saying, I'm, I'm with you, I'm part of you, and here's my brother Timothy, and we're in this together. So it's a friendly letter. It's people that he knows. We'll keep going. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, we're not exactly sure why he points out, you know, the overseers, which is like the elders and the deacons. Uh, but he's, he's, he's noting to all of them, this is to everyone within the context of the church. I'm not just talking to the leadership. I'm, I'm talking to everyone who is at this church and everyone who, is a, is, who professes to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Here we go, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's in part a typical greeting, but he's essentially uh, saying to them, I, I, I want this to be done in, in a measure that is from the Lord Jesus Christ, that this is coming from a, a gracious point of view, and, and it's a, gre- a simple greeting at that. Verse 3 says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And so it's kind of a complicated way of saying things. In fact, there has been some uh, disagreement on exactly what he's saying there, but it seems to me that it's fairly simple what he's trying to say. He's trying to say, I, I, every time I think about you, every time I remember you, I thank God for who you are and what you've done. So he's, he's graciously laying out to them like, I love you guys. I, I remember you in prayer significantly. Think about the ties that are had between the Apostle Paul and these people. I I love you guys. Look at verse 4 again. Uh, Always in every prayer of mine for you, uh, for you all, making my prayer with joy. And this is in part why people get the idea of joy from the book of Philippians. He's saying, I'm I'm joyful about my relationship with you, and I'm I'm joyful about what God is doing in your life, and I'm joyful, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from uh, the first day until now. And so what we, we can say about this is that what, what he's doing is he's saying, like, I am praying for you, and I'm so incredibly happy that you've partnered with me in the work of sharing the gospel to the world. And now the question is to us, do we have partnership and sharing the gospel to the world with anyone or anything? Think about it this way. In our individualistic society, it's very much an American thing. In our individualistic society, when, we're, when we are really just trying to figure out how to get along in life, I think about this for myself all the time with all the things that I have going on in, in my world. And I, and I was thinking about it this week, like, do I have partnership in the gospel? Of course, I lead a church uh, along with uh, some other elders 
Um, and we, we lead that together. And, and so there, in a sense, it's my job to have partnership. But in my heart of hearts, does Matt Porter have partnership in the gospel? Am I thinking about what God is doing? Do I love the people who are doing the work of God uh, uh, for, for the sake of the gospel in our world? And am I partnering with that? And so that's our question this morning is, are we partnered with what God is doing? Or are we in it just for ourselves? Are we in it just for ourselves? You know, many of us are in a place of, of, of difficulty. There's difficult things going on in life, and you need help. And, and in some ways, this is like a hospital. We're here to help you. We, we believe that when you live according to uh, the way of Jesus, when you walk the way that Jesus did and does, when you walk that way, life goes better. These, the, the rules and the regulations that we always think about when it comes to the Bible are not rules and regulations just because God is a cosmic killjoy. But they're, they are rules and they're regulations to say, God is saying to us, this is the way that I've designed you. And so as a result, when you live my way, life goes better. Life goes better. And so what happens is this, is that we naturally have this disposition among us. Every single one of us, it says in Romans 1, every single one of us has this disposition to say, I know that there's a God, or, or, or I know that, 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 that he is real, and yet we try to push back against that, almost violently at times. We try to push back against that. We commit the same error that, that happened in the garden, and the error is this, God, you don't know better than I do. What does the serpent say to Eve? Uh, no, you're not going to die if you eat of that fruit from that tree. God knows that you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. You're going to know what's up. You don't have to depend on God to know what's up. You can just go and do your own thing. You can, do your, you can go your own way. You can, you can make happen whatever you want to make happen. You don't have to depend on God for that. And so what happens in those moments in the garden and then in every life since then is that we make choices that are consistently against God all of the time. And what happens as a result is that our life begins to show the result of those choices. Our lives begin to show those results. And the people who are really blessed in life are the people who are able to see how their choices mess them up, how their, how their choices have messed up their marriage. When I'm talking with a guy about his marriage, when I'm talking about a dude who's in the midst of difficulty in his marriage, one of the greatest moments that happens in his life is when he realizes, I am the biggest problem in my marriage. I'm the biggest issue in this thing, and I don't need to focus on making her better. I need to focus on making me better. I need to focus on what's going on with my choices and my problems and my thinking. What's wrong with me? When they begin to focus on themselves and say, okay, I'm the biggest problem, when they realize their brokenness, when they realize how messed up their thinking is, then they can get on the road to seeing things become differently. That's when that, that happens. This also happens with women. I just happen to work with mostly men for obvious reasons, personally speaking. Our thinking is messed up, and so we come to church, and, and we need our thinking to be, to be changed. 
We need our thinking to be changed, and so we come to church for us. That's a good thing. We come to church for us, but then what takes place is that we get better, we get well, and then we never stick around to serve and to help others grow. It, it's just the model of Christianity that's been uh, proposed throughout uh, American Christianity. We talked uh, last week, I believe, about discipleship and the need to be, uh, to be not just be disciples of Jesus Christ, be followers of him, like follow his life, do what Jesus does, but to bring others along with us and show them the way of Jesus. Show them who Jesus is, what he's done for them through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And yet the reason why this doesn't happen is because our thinking still it hasn't been changed. It may have changed in the context of our marriage when we begin to have a good marriage, but then it still doesn't change, and we don't turn around and say, okay, who else can I help? We don't have any partnership in the gospel. We have a partnership in making my life better oftentimes. Now, that's not everybody in this room. Not everybody in this room is, is operating with that in mind, but everyone in this room struggles with that. If I struggle with it, I guarantee you, you struggle with it. We, we all struggle with that, that idea. We lack the participation in the gospel that Jesus calls us to. The Apostle Paul is so thankful for this church because they are participating in the gospel from the first day until now, he says, and he says this in verse 6, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So I think when you, when you think about that verse, it's a verse that's used quite frequently. God's going to do his thing. God, God's going to work. But I really want you to think about it for a moment. Hey, hey, hey church in Philippi, you got, I'm so thankful for you. I'm, I'm so thankful that you're partnered in the gospel, and what's, what's our propensity? I wonder if Paul isn't saying this, isn't saying this in verse 6, because he wants them to understand, you're partnered with me, but you still got room to grow. Just so you're aware, you haven't arrived. Just so, so you're aware, God still has work to do in your life. One of the worst places that you and I can be in our lives with Christ is to come to a point where we say, I've arrived. We say somehow things are good now. They're, they're, they're okay. It's perhaps one of the worst places that you can be. In fact, one of, one, of the, 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 one of the least desirable places to be in life is to be so completely jacked up and yet not have any idea that you are jacked up. To be so completely messed up in your thinking and yet have no idea that your thinking is messed up. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, this is our issue. This is our issue. We are so messed up, yet we delude ourselves into believing, into thinking that somehow everything's okay. What Paul says here in verse 6, he says, this is what I'm sure of. This is what you can count on. This is what's real. He says that he who began a good work in you, did you begin a good work in you? If you believe that you began a good work in you, then that means that there is some level of pride, there's some level of arrogance, there's some level of, I chose God, and so therefore, I can look down on people who sin in these ways, and in these ways, and in these ways. 
I can look down on them when they struggle. I can, I can make much of, of all the dumb things that they're doing. When you believe that you're the one that brought you to God, that's when you become an arrogant punk. I think that's what Paul's saying. When you believe that you did it, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, salvation, coming to a saving knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, that's salvation. Salvation is no longer looking to all of the things in my life for fulfillment or ultimate fulfillment, I should say. Not looking to my marriage as the ultimate fulfillment. Not looking to finding marriage as the ultimate fulfillment. Not looking to my business as ultimate fulfillment. Looking to Jesus as my ultimate and final and only fulfillment. When you can say and believe that that, that in reality, what's actually been my salvation, what gets me up out of bed in the morning, what drives me in life, what causes me to, to feel like a good person, when you say that at any of the, that your business is that, that even your good works, the nice things that you do, the, the correctness of your family, your finances, your, your education, your pedigree, where you come from, where you're going what your major is, all of those things lie outside of real salvation, really walking with Jesus. And guys, that's where sin comes from. That's where sin comes from. Because we believe that something else can save us, and so you begin to overuse it. That's what addiction is. Addiction is taking a good thing and making it a God thing. Whether it's money, sex, or power. There's, there's been a lot of that in our, in our world. Our world's pointing it out for us with the Me Too campaign that's going on on that, the hashtag Me Too thing that's happening on through Twitter and Facebook and, and things of that nature. What are people pointing out? Our world is pointing out to these primarily men, you are wrong because you made your position of power and your sexual desire your God. And you have tried to make that the ultimate thing and, you've eat, and as a result, you have tried to become God over these women. You've demanded things from them. You've said, I'll give you good things if you give me what I want. Go ahead and worship me in this way. And then, and then we'll be okay. Our world is already telling you this. Our world already knows this. That when you idolize, when you worship and serve something as a God other than the true and living God, what happens is this. You misuse it, and you will abuse people. You'll, you'll abuse yourself, and it leads to death. Our world already sees this. What needs to take place I'm sure of this, that, that he who began a good work in you, 
It, he's going to be the one who not only starts it, but he's going to be the one to finish it. He's going to finish the work that he did in you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God's not only the author of your salvation, but he's the finisher of salvation. He's the one that carries it through to completion. And anything else, any other thoughts on that are primarily pharisaical. If I've got to do it, if I've got to be the one that's making that happen, then I'm going to create legalism in my life, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be the one that's behind the curtain pulling, pulling the levers. I'm going to make this take place. It doesn't happen that way. You want to get rid of me too? The me too thing, the, the me too problem in our society? It doesn't just happen, and, and I believe that we should be advocating for every woman who has been abused in any way, every man, woman, or, or, or child, for that matter, who's been abused. We should advocate that, uh, 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 for the prosecution of, of the people who have done this abuse. I absolutely believe that. But the ultimate and final um, resolution to that will be that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords in the hearts of men and women. So then he says this, verse 7, it is right for me to phreneo, it's right for me to feel. Remember the word that I said is think? They called it feel right there. It's not that they're wrong. They're trying to get the sense because as we know, we have words that mean different things at different times in our English language. Same thing happens in, in Greek. So the translators who went back to the original text, the original, the original manuscript copies that we have of the, of the letter to the Philippians, they go back to that and they look at that word and they say, the sense that Paul is trying to communicate is that he's saying that this is, this is, it's right for me to feel this way about you, but the word is to think. It's to think. So I think Paul is, is saying that. He's saying it's right for me to feel this way, but he's using the same word. He's using phreneo. It's right for me to phreneo this way about you all I, I, it's right for me to think this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So he's saying like, I, it's, it's right for me to think about you in these ways. I, I, I love you so much because you're partakers uh, with me of grace. You have been with me in my imprisonment. You've been with me in, in defending me. And you've been with me in confirmation of the gospel. What Paul sees in these people's life is not just that they profess to know Jesus, it's not just that they're saying that, yeah, I, 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 I like this Jesus guy. Or like, <clears throat> I'm cool with God. And, and, and like, you know, I, I believe that there is a God. Or I b believe that. It's not just that. It's not just saying that. It is saying, like, what's happening in your life leads to confirmation of the gospel. That you've received the gospel. Now, can we say about our lives... That what's going on in my life is confirmation that the gospel is real. 
that like there like it's confirmed in me that I really have the gospel implanted in my heart and that that is what I want has the gospel been confirmed in us some reading I did Last week for last week's sermon um, was uh, a sermon by Dr. Timothy Keller, whom I love to, to read. And one of the things that he, an illustration that he used was, uh, you know, when you go up to one of those old candy machines, I mean, they, they take cards these days, but they used to just take quarters. In fact, one time when I was a kid, I got really high at school and uh, I uh, put a quarter in and like hit the button and nothing came out, and then, so then I banged on the machine, and all of a sudden, I'm, the machine starts spitting out quarters, like one after another, after another, after another, and my mind was like blown, I was like, whoa, dude, like this is crazy, like it, it just like manna from heaven, it was like quarters, oh, and I was so excited about it, but back to Tim Keller's illustration, uh, Um, what, where was I going with that? Okay. You put a quarter in, and you're trying to get something out of the machine, and you, you don't hear it drop all the way down and get into the place where it needs to go so that the machine knows, like, I need to give this guy a candy bar or whatever. And he said, for some of us, it's like the quarter's been put in the slot, but it's never dropped down to the bottom. And we can sit there all we want, and we can try to bang on the machine and try to get the quarter to drop into our heart, get the coin to drop. But the truth is, is that the coin has never dropped in our heart. Man, if I could tell you one thing, like the biggest thing that I see over and over again is people who believe that they're Christians but have never seen the gospel confirmed in their heart. They've, that quarter has never dropped in their heart. And they go, oh, oh, this is what this is. This is what this is about. I see it all the time from people that have grown up in the church, from people that have been a part of Christianity for so long. I, I, they see it all the time. In fact, one of the ways that I try to get at you, I'm going to give away a little bit of a secret here. The, the, the way that I try to disrupt what you're thinking is, is that so many times, People that are Christians are primarily politically aligned with right-wing conservative things. And so I say things on Sunday intentionally to disrupt the way that you think about that because right-wing conservative politics is not the party of Jesus. But guess what? Neither is left-wing liberal politics. And so what I say to you when I'm preaching is I'm trying to help you understand like your alignment with everything that you believe is Christian, your belief that this is, that, that this is Christian and, and that, that's what it means to be a Christian is to believe the right things about these political issues and so forth. Your belief in that is not the gospel having dropped in your heart. Confirmation of the gospel. What does that even look like? It looks like this. When you put away idols and you say, I'm not going to serve money, sex, and power. I'm not going to serve a political system. I'm going to serve Jesus. I'm going to serve him 
over and above that. And so therefore, when you finally get to the point where you say, it's enough of this and enough of that and enough of all of these other things, like the gospel has dropped in my heart. And what really happens when the gospel is confirmed in your heart is an absolutely offensive way to think about yourself. Like, you, you can't be a Christian without first being offended. You can't be a Christian without first being offended. Here's why. We are hardwired as sinners because of the first sins in the garden. We're hardwired to believe we're right and everyone else is wrong. God is wrong primarily. I know the difference between good and evil. We're hardwired for this. The gospel comes in and says, not only are you wrong, but you're dead wrong. And as a result, you're dead. You walk around and you live in death. You create death. Your life is death. Your thinking is so messed up that you create death in your marriage. You create death in your work. You create death in in everything. You create death in the things that you produce. You have this internal function that says everything needs to have death because I believe that I know the right way about all things. And so what needs to happen is you must be offended. Offense is like there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who seeks for God. There's no one who desires him in and of themselves. There's no Christian person that did that on their own. There's nobody in this room that's above anybody else because the, the, uh, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, as they say. There's no one above anybody else. We're all sinners in need of grace. My choices have been wrong. The way that I thought about things has been wrong. I will still produce wrong choices. I'm wrong. God is right. If you come to God and you say, you know, God, I think you're cool, I, I, I like you, whatever, that's great, but that's not the gospel. The gospel first comes in as an, as an offensive statement. It's the bad news. It's the bad news about who God is, that God, because he is so righteous, he must prosecute all sinners. And what that means, what we really feel excited about is that as Christians, we believe that God is going to prosecute every sinner, every person that has committed me too, every abuser, every, every person who has committed genocide, every person that's, that's, uh, that's committed sins against society, against us personally, God will take care of that. And that's all fine and good until we realize That God's not just coming after those sinners, he's coming after this sinner. God in all of his righteousness, he cannot let by anything. Which means he can't let me by either. Where does me too come from? Me too comes from the thoughts, the imaginations, the will of men who are determined to abuse to seek pleasure. It's not just the actions that God is worried about. It's the thoughts that preceded the action. You can't commit some type of sin against someone abusing them without first having the thoughts, the feelings, the actions, the emotions that are driving that. You can't. 
The confirmation of the gospel has to come into our lives. And we know that that coin has dropped when we've been offended by God. We've been offended by him so much and we receive that offense and we say, you know what? God, you're right. I'm actually the one that's offended you. Have you ever acknowledged your offense towards God? Have you been riding high thinking, I chose God. I'm cool. I'm cool with church. That's not confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I'll leave that at that. Verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the, the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's look at that for just a second here. Look at the key words there. If you, were to, if you had a pen and, and you had a, a Bible uh, out instead of an app, You'd be a real Christian, but um, uh, I, I, you, you should underline love. L look at what he's saying. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Just stop right there for a second. Like Paul, he starts with the love. He starts with where you are in the heart. He starts with where you are personally. And what he's saying to this, to this church is he's saying... Like, the first place that you begin is not like, okay, I'm, I'm doing jacked up things. And the first place that you begin is, where are the loves of my heart? Where are the loves that are, that are involved in me? What do I love the most? Because of this, your actions are not just things that you just decided to do out of, I don't know what happened to me. I just, I just did it, and I... No, that's not what happened. That action, that, that sin, that thing came from a deep and abiding and, and all-encompassing love in your heart that is not Jesus Christ. That action happened because you don't love Christ, at least in this situation. You actually love something more than Christ. Confirmation of the gospel has not come, at least to this area of your life, perhaps all of life. Because you loved something more than you loved Jesus. The coin didn't drop in that area. It's not been confirmed. Paul is praying for these people and he's saying, I want your love, I want it to go to the bottom. I want the coin to drop all the way down in you, so much so, and I want it to abound more and more. Think, look at what he says. He says, love, when you have this love, what happens? Like, what takes place is knowledge. That's not phreneo, that's not thinking. 
The reason why I'd say think, phreneo, is the key theme in this is because not only does he say phreneo, but he uses other words that are all kind of around phreneo, thinking, such as knowledge. So he says that your love may abound more and more with knowledge. So like what's going to inform your, uh, your knowledge is your love to begin with. Because what you love most changes the way that you begin to think. What you love most drives your thinking, drives your actions, drives what's going on. And look at what he says. So that your love may abound more and more with knowledge. And what's going to happen as, the res- as a result of knowledge? When the, when the coin drops and it gets into your heart and there's love, and that love begins to produce this knowledge. You end up having knowledge and it grows up into your mind and you end up beginning to go, okay, this is, this is how to think. And then what takes place is discernment. The, the true ability to discern. Remember what I said about back in the garden. No, you're not going to die, Eve, if you take part of that fruit. God knows that, you, that you'll be wise like him. That you'll, you'll know the difference between good and evil. You don't need God anymore. You can have discernment on your own. You do not need God. What's this say? When you love God, when the coin is dropped, when, when the gospel's been confirmed, and that what takes place is that you're, you're, you're loving him, it produces a knowledge in your life, and then what happens after that is discernment. Now, real discernment can take place because you have restored relationship with God. The garden separates us from God. The gospel is all about connecting us back with the mind of God and changing our mind and changing our thinking. Verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. So not only does it goes from love to, uh, to knowledge to discernment. Okay, I can tell the difference between these two things to not just discernment, but you can say, okay, this is right and this is wrong. Look at what our world is doing constantly. It's constantly telling us, hey, Christians, you're all wrong about what's right and wrong. And we say, we love you. We care about you. All of us are lost without the grace of Jesus Christ. But because of the grace of Jesus Christ, my mind has been changed. And as a result, I do not think the way that the world thinks. I want to think God's thoughts. I, I, I want him to tell me what to believe. I want to hear what he has to say, which means this, that we love people who hate God, which means this, that we care for people that do not care about God, that we, that we, that we give people food that will never believe in God, that will never trust in him. Why do we do it? Because the gospel's been concern, con, confirmed in our heart, and as a result, we have a deep and abiding love for humanity. Why? Because they're image bearers. They are image bearers of God. They bear the image of God. Somehow, in some way, God created them as image bearers. We are to love them so that we can approve what is excellent and not just say, okay, this is right and this is wrong, but now we can begin to make real choices that then come out in this way that we begin to be pure. There's a purity. Now, is that saying I'm going to be 100% pure? Absolutely not. 
It means that progressively I will be sanctified. It means that progressively as the gospel is confirmed in my heart, if I really believed, if the coin dropped if with that offense from God and I say, I have actually offended God, I'm a sinner, then what's going to take place is that little by little I'm going to have these thoughts. I'm going to begin to know what God approves of and what he disapproves of, and then I'm going to begin to be able to make right choices. I'm going to be able to make good choices. And as a result, I'm going to be pure, and I'm going to be blameless for the day of Christ. Why? Not because I did what was right. Keep, keep, keep that in mind. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. When real love takes place in your life, actions follow that love. That love is a work that God began in you. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. So from beginning to end, from me receiving Jesus Christ to me walking in Jesus Christ to me, to me uh, walking in purity increasingly in my life, to begin to carry out the fruit of righteousness. What's the fruit of righteousness? It is the great exchange. God, uh, Jesus gives us his perfection. He gives us his perfect heart, and he takes our sin, and he goes to the cross. He goes to the cross, and he dies for that, and he's risen from the grave. And as a result, what happens is that we're able, instead of having to operate in death, now we can operate in life. Now we can be people who are full of life. We don't have to live according to our, our desires and, and all of our sinful affections and because we are idolizing the things that are in, in our world. Now we can go after God as a result. And what happens is this, is that we begin to walk in him and it is the fruit of righteousness that only comes as a result of knowing Jesus Christ. And the end result of our life will be this, that we will bring glory and praise to God with the way that we live. Now, if you've been here for the last several weeks, what you've heard is this, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are dead set on this, and that is that we want to be so changed by the gospel. We believe so firmly that Jesus went to the cross for us that it changes who we are and it affects our city. That's what THX is. That's what we're doing in our community groups. That's what we're doing throughout all of our lives. We're seeing the gospel change our lives, and as a result, it's going to affect our city. We're going to see the deeds that are the fruit of righteousness. We're going to see a purity in who we are. That's what happens when we get the gospel, when our thinking is changed. Have you been doing behavior modification all along? It's miserable. In fact, I, I stink at it. I cannot change myself. I don't have the willpower to do it. Jesus is the only one that changes my mind. When I'm walking with him, when I'm praying to him, when I'm abiding in Christ, drinking him in, thinking about him, saying, God, I want to live like you. You know what I see? Change in my life. Do you want to see change in your life? Come back next week. And believe the gospel, all right? Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, you are good. You are worthy to be followed. You are worthy of our love and affection. You are worthy of all praise and all glory and all honor. Lord, I pray that we would not work to steal that from you by trying to do good things on our own, but allow you to be the one that changes us from the inside out. Lord God, would you do that in our hearts and minds? There are so many people in this room that want that. There's so many people that don't just, they, they're saying right now, I do not just, I'm not just here to get a bit better marriage or to, or to get over depression or to, to, to get through something difficult. That's not the only thing that I'm here for. I want more. I want to be changed from the bottom up. I want to be changed from the inside out. I want love to come into my heart through this confirmation of the gospel. Lord, I'll do whatever I've got to do. I'll say whatever i got to say. I'll pray whatever it is that you want me to pray. And I just, I just want that, Lord. May that be true in us. And may we see that it will not take any doing on our own. That it will not be because of something that we've done. That we would just see you on the cross and say, Thank you, Jesus, for having gone to the cross in my place for my sins as a substitute so that I did not have to go to that cross. And as a result, I can sacrifice myself.